Literature with Nancy Richards. It's the show about words and writing, books and reading here on SAFM Literature. And today it's also about glory and about migration, about war, horses, Isidingo and a big double dose of poetry. So, who's the team? Well, it's me, Nancy Richards, here in Cape Town, together with Lance Andrews. And in Johannesburg, we have Sulu Fellopello and Wendy Lee Makatsana. And we have you, and if you'd like to give us a call, the number best to do it on is 0891-104-207. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook. It's SAFM Literature. And uh, if you'd like to pop us a mail, we're at books at safm.co.za. So there you go. There you have the details. But now, let me give you the, uh, the content, what we're going to be talking about today. Another in our win, another double feature in our hero uh, hero slot. Just starting off with Ragged Glory, the Rainbow Nation in Black and White. We're going to be talking to Ray Hartley, who's the editor at large for the Times Media Group, and a man who's lived through many, many of the the grey years. Black and White. He's talking about it's a fascinating story. After that, we'll be talking about the migrant women of Johannesburg, together with Caroline Wanjiku Kiato. She's an independent researcher and writer, and she's trained her gaze for this particular book on the stories of the women who, for whatever many, many reasons there may be, have found themselves in the city of gold, for better or worse, of migrant women of Johannesburg. And then in our text slot today, a writer, a, a writer of many sorts, in fact, he's, he spent over 4,000 episodes of Isidingo, and he says, a soap opera is like a worm. Each episode is a segment of a never-ending arthropod invertebrate. He's also, he's also the author of a couple of books, one of them called The Book of War, the other one called Walk, and he's James Wiley. And then after the news at two, book two, the first of our two poets today, very much looking forward to hearing once again from Anki Kroch about her brand new collections of poem, collection of, of poems called Synapse. And what a collection it is, what a conglomeration of, of compiled words used and fused, absolutely lovely stuff. So look forward to that one after the news at two. Our bookshelf uh, read-up recommender today is Ntokozo Mchunu, she's going to give us the title of her choice. And then our story feature is a documentary, Music Fans, Pin Back Your Ears. It's the first of a two-part piece, once again by Nigel Famas, on klezmer music. Fire, three o'clock, uh, or just after the news at three o'clock, Roger Webster is offering us a, a special today on Horses at War. That was the one that we denied last week. And another item that fell away last week, we're going to be talking, it's another bite of the poetry plum, we'll be talking to Mac Manaka about uh, all the many words that uh, populate his head. So that's what we've got lined up, plus the Sunday play. So stay with us for all of that, but right now, uh, stay tuned, it's SFM Literature. 911, what is your emergency? I don't know what to do, I'm so confused. Please trust a calm ma'am, state your name and address. Is this a domestic issue? Yes, it's Mbalin Teto, number four, Econlen. Oh, I don't know what to do. I was just coming back. Is it true? Huh? Are you there? Yes, I am, ma'am. Don't worry. Sorry, you say who's coming back? Oh, Karabo. Penashi is broke from Zanzi. Now I have to dress up every day. Karabo's coming back? Song is Funugwazi. Everyone wants to know. Generations the Legacy, starting 1st December at 8 p.m., only on SABC1. Mzanzi, for sure. <laughs> Things are surely expected to heat up going into the fifth ODI at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Be sure to catch the green and gold as they're out to prove that come next year's World Cup, they will be a well-oiled machine. Tune in to your favourite radio station on the 23rd of November. Action starts at 5.20am. If you're worried about your financial future, Thinking about life insurance, saving for retirement, 
Not sure about investing for you and your family? What about your children's education? To answer all your questions, join me, Brian Hirsch, Tuesday morning, 10 o'clock. First up here on SAFM Literature Today in our uh, Hero One slot, a story that's very much all about the here and now or all about the, the here and just yesterday, just the other day. It's called Ragged Glory, the rainbow nation in black and white. It's been written by former editor of the Sunday Times, founding editor of the Times, a long-time journalist, Ray Hartley, who's delved into his own memory, into that of many, many others. He's done a million interviews. And as well as he's, he's also delved into a personal stash of his own of documents, printed matter, matter, interviews and all the notes that he's taken over the years. And uh, so he brings us the rainbow nation in black and white between the covers of a very colourful book called Ragged Glory. And it all begins on May the 10th, 1994, where we've got Ray on the line to cast his mind back to that day. Hi, Ray. Hi, Nancy. Lovely to have you uh, on the line. Ray, you've done a lot of casting back for this particular book. Let's start with why did you decide to write it? So much has been written. There's been a, a sort of a mountain reflection of our last 20 years. Why did you decide to write this one? With what purpose? I think that we, we tend to sort of stumble from one story to the next in South Africa, usually one scandal to the next. And um, I had the idea that there's actually a narrative. The country, the new South Africa, the post-democratic South Africa, actually has a story which is uh, continuous and that a lot of the things that you see happening today have their roots in things which happened long ago. And that would be a good idea to try and sort of pull together the, the story of the new democratic South Africa from 20 years ago until now. Yeah. And I suppose with the beauty of hindsight, it's possible to make sense of it. And I love your word stumble, because that's exactly how it is in many cases, as it must be for yourself as a journalist. You know, you've, you've got to get this story, you've got a deadline, you've got to get it out there. There isn't necessarily always time to process it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's say journalism is the first draft of history. <laughs> and, uh, you know, which is so true, because if you go back, you know, all the incidents, everything that happened is documented, it's out there. But it's not the history. It's, it's it's the first draft. It's that thing that's written on the day, uh, you know, from an event that's unfolding before your eyes. And, you know, we need the second draft, and then we need the final draft. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure where my book fits in there, but <laughs> <laughs> probably second draft. Well, I, I think it kind of, it kind of, actually it ticks all the boxes, really, it's, especially because you're a journalist, because that first draft has got to be done in the heat, hasn't it? It's got to be the, the oh my goodness, wow, look what's happened. And going back, it's so interesting that you've gone back over your own notes, your own interviews, all that stuff that you've compiled and amassed. How did it feel going back through all that? Can you sort of remember how it felt at the time? Yeah, it was an extraordinary thing. You know, I mean, it also reminded me of how imperfect, uh, well, my memory is, and, and maybe everybody's memory is really for, for detail, you know, and a lot of the stuff which I'd thought that I knew off by heart, you know, just from my own experience, going back through my notes and through the uh documents and speeches from the Times and so on, uh, you know, you got an idea that a lot of it was actually very different to that, that, uh, you know, events, times, when things happened, it's quite interesting how the, you know, the details 
slip out of your grasp uh, as the years pass by. Yeah. And going back, it was quite it was quite startling for me how much took place, you know, in those first five years of democracy from 94 through to 99. It was extraordinary uh, changing of a society, transformation of a society that took place. I mean, the legislation alone was vast. Yeah, yeah, not to mention the building of the constitution of which you were a part. Yeah, I know, I had a minor part, you know, the the talks at Cadessa were uh, fascinating because I was a fly on the wall there, I was a minute secretary in one of the committees, it happened to be the one where uh, Ramaphosa was sitting with Colin Eglin and others and they were looking at the Bill of Rights and it was extraordinary for me to, to witness how that unfolded, you know, it was, it was quite, a, quite a remarkable time really. That must have been an amazing experience. I mean, were there times where you just had to button your lip, as they say, um, and, and not say anything, because there you were to, to record it, to chronicle it, get the minutes down, without necessarily having any input? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was very important for the administration to be completely out of the political discussion and not to be seen to be on one or another side. And mm-hmm. um, so it kind of it was an interesting way of placing you as a person in sort of forcing you into a neutral position where you had to respond to, listen to, watch what was happening without any bias or in as much as anybody can have no bias. Uh, you had to try and try and be that sort of person. And, and it was quite amazing really how people reached out to each other and found this common ground in those negotiations. And that's almost the thing that that we need to get back to yeah. in South Africa now, I think. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Looking back to that time, I mean, your book is a reflection of, you know, the highs and lows and the, oh, where are we now? That neutral position, that not to be seen to be being on either side, it's it very much in, in some ways the role of a journalist, you know. You're there to get the quotes, to get the facts, to put it down, this is what happened. I mean, I'm saying this in an ideal world, I suppose that's how it's supposed to be. But with a book like this, you were able to perhaps not only fill in all those details that somehow sort of slipped through the cracks, but also to, to, to add in your own thoughts on the subject. How, how was that, or, or were you careful not to do too much of that? I tried, I tried not to, but I mean, inevitably you do... You know, for me, there were certain conclusions that, that, that sort of leapt up to me, you know, that, um, that I felt I could make in a book, um, which is really, uh, you know, it's, it's not a strict history. It's not a, a day-by-day, blow-by-blow account of the last 20 years, but rather an attempt to say these are the themes that, that, that evolved over these 20 years. And so I, I did find myself taking a view on, on some of those things. You know, I think a lot of the corruption problems that you have today, for example, have their roots in some early decisions that were made, uh, you know, under the Mandela presidency. You know, when uh, uh, the Serafina II scandal occurred, for example, you know, there was, uh, there was an opportunity there, I think, for Mandela to have stamped it out right there and then and said, we're not going to do this, there are going to be consequences. But that didn't happen, and the, the minister got off the hook, and some junior official, uh, you know, got fired. And I think that that sets a template for the way South Africa then evolved, because 
politicians, I think, all understood, well, you know, the, the bar has just been lowered a little bit. Yeah, you, you can get away with a whole lot more. Yes, I think, what was it, 14 million, 14 million rand were allocated to that Sarafina. Yes. The, the themes that you mentioned, what you've actually done is we've broken it down into four parts, which fairly neatly, the first three certainly fairly neatly fit into um, Madiba's rule, as it were, reign, if you like, uh, Mbeki and then Zuma. Did it fall naturally into those three sections with the last one as well? Yes, I think, I think it did. You know, although the boundaries are blurred, I do think that there are such distinctive personalities, these three uh, president, and then there's the forgotten president in the middle, um, Motlante, um, who served a brief term. But the three presidents who served substantial terms are such very, very different personalities, and they and they actually ran very, very different administrations. And I think that it does tell you the influence that one person can have at the top on the way in which a society moves or evolves is, is vast especially in the South African setup, uh, where you have an, an executive president. And for me, that was how it broke down. You know, the boundaries are blurred, however, because, you know, Mbeki played quite a substantial role during the, the Mandela presidency and towards the end of that presidency. But he did bring a very different type of presidency to bear uh, during his tenure. And uh, the same is true of Zuma. <laughs> And how the sort of the baton got passed on, you know, sometimes in, in a slightly clumsy way, I suppose, you know, that, that those sort of crossings between from the one to the next. I suppose it's tempting, um, but perhaps it's all there in the, in the words as they go on, to sort of at the end of each one of the, the, the reigns, if you like, to, to take the learnings from it. You know, now, what did we learn from this? What did we learn from him? We, you know, do you know yeah. what I mean? Almost you want to sort yeah. of bullet points at the end. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I, I was tempted to actually do that, literally, in the book. But I, I decided not to in the end. <laughs> I just let the chapter, I mean, I think at the end of the Mandela presidency, I did write uh, something about the seeds that lay fallow, which essentially reflected on what I was saying earlier about opportunities to clamp down on corruption, which were missed. And then, um, yeah, I think that, that the Mbeki presidency was just such a, a different presidency. For me, Mandela had this understanding that you had to have reconciliation in order to release and mobilize the potential of the whole society. Um, you, know, you know, if you wanted to do reconstruction, you need to bring everybody in, on board and you need this political mechanism and Mbeki took a very different approach. I think he wanted to do transformation and he wanted to set people against each other. And so, you know, it's quite amazing how that emerges clearly as you look back through the years. Um, um, yes, now I was just going to say, and what, what's emerging from the, from the present, from our present president is, is still emerging, so it's still too soon to be making any yeah. comment, I suppose. But you do say at the end of the book, um, and just just before I get to the end of the book, the you know what I was saying about wouldn't it be interesting to to look at the learnings from each and every one of them? But you already made enough work for yourself because the notes are extensive, and as only a true journalist could do, I mean extensive notes from where all the information came. Was this in case anybody said to you, but no, that's not true? 
I mean, have you backed yourself up? Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be absolutely clear <laughs> that I was I was nailing everything down, mm. you know, and uh, it was important to do that, as I said earlier, you know, to, even from things which I thought I knew when I went back and looked at them, with, hang on, it wasn't quite like that, it's sort of the popular mythology has developed that way, but actually it, it was slightly different, and so to go back to the original documents, um, I think is always the, the best exercise. Mm and actually read them thoroughly and quote from them. Because over the years, I think reporting, and then it becomes shorthand, and then eventually it becomes a throwaway line. Uh, and and the whole policy becomes caricatured in a particular way. So to try and say these are the original sources that I consulted, I think was quite important. Yeah. Well, it makes it a very important book for anybody who's got not much of a memory, and I think that we're all so busy with the present. Sometimes things do get blurred and you forget about it. It's, ex- it's an extraordinary piece that you put together for us all, so thank you very much. And the amount thank of people you've managed to interview, I mean, Ramaphosa, the clerk, Nechikens, Denze, Zilla, Leon, uh, Shiloa, the list goes on. It's a phenomenal um, exercise, as you put it. But just to go back to the end... Um, there, there's a line that says, and you're actually quoting uh, Edwin Cameron, Justice Cameron, you say, there is hope for South Africa. Were you, were you left feeling hopeful? Yes, I think so. You know, I think that we're quite an impatient society and that we get frustrated when things go wrong. But I have a lot of faith in the institutions that were established uh, 20 years ago and that, have, and that endure. To this day, you know, the judiciary, for example, um, you know, these and the constitution and the constitutional, uh, constitutional court. And these institutions are alongside the primary institution, which is, of course, democracy itself, the exercise of the ballot. And I think you're seeing growing uh, political competition. If you look at parliament today, you know, it's, it's too vibrant, you know, Three or four years ago, you would have said, oh, it's, there's nothing happening in Parliament. Mm-hmm. There's this huge majority, and then there's a fractured opposition. And it, it's sort of... And, and now we, you know, our complaint is, is in the opposite direction. You know, we should just calm down a little bit. Yeah. But I think this is a good thing, because it's a, it's a symptom of increased political competition, and that makes everybody better. I think it's much easier to get the message across to government to deliver and to get the work of government done when you've got other people breathing down your neck Um, and that mechanism is only starting to play out now well certainly nobody could accuse uh, parliament or anything else of being boring so I hope you're making notes for the next (laughs) 20 20 year book Ray thank you very much and once again thank you on behalf of all of us it's rather presumptuous of me but I think it's it's a really fine book for everybody to have to remind, lest we all forget. Thank you very much for your time. Thank Take you. care. Thanks a lot. Ragged Glory, Ray Hartley there, and the book's published by Jonathan Ball. Certainly one to just have, so you, just in case you don't remember, there it all is. You're listening to SFM Literature. Stay with us.
Well, here on SAFM Literature, talking of things that happen on a daily basis later on, we're going to be talking to one of the uh, scriptwriters for Issy Dingo. So if you're a fan, make sure that you stay with us for all of that, because there's a heck of a lot goes on there, too. But right now, uh, another story, which is, or many stories that have been put together into one slim book. It's a book called Migrant Women of Johannesburg. Well, I have to say a sector of society whose stories are, are quite possibly, what can I say, underheard, but not so by Caroline Wanjiku Kiato, who is an independent researcher and writer and visiting senior researcher at the uh, School of Architecture and Planning at the University of Bratislava. But what she has done is she's uh, trained her gaze on all those women whose stories are just really not heard. She's in our Joburg studio. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Nancy. Really nice to meet you. Yes, lovely to talk to you again. We had we briefly spoke about your book way before it was published, but now that it's here, it's really nice to be looking at it. And it's is it a rather wonderful William Kentridge on the cover? Oh no, that's Senza Shabangu, who oh, is okay. just an amazing artist. He he's a young man who moved from Pumalanga to come to Johannesburg in search of, you know, economic yeah. opportunities and a life that he can be proud of. Oh, good. Well, I'm not sure if I've elevated him or William Kentridge, but it's a wonderful, <laughs> it's a wonderful picture on the cover. His stuff is uh, David Crute. I would just um, recommend that anybody okay. go and see it. It's, he's, he's incredible. Good. Senzo Shabango, in case That's you didn't right. get that. Lovely. Thank you. Well, let's talk about you, Caroline. Um, I, I'm not sure. I think we should start with you because... There is you throughout each and every one of these women's stories. I mean, the very fact that you undertook to listen to these women's stories means that you relate. Tell us about you. What are you doing here in South Africa? Well, Nancy, I left Nairobi in 1994, having finished my undergraduate degree at the University of Nairobi and not having had any opportunity to find work. And it was at a time when South Africa was also opening up and for the first time Africans were able to come in to, to South Africa legally. And I thought to come and, you know, try and try my luck in Johannesburg, <laughs> as many other people before me had done. Mm. And um, it didn't really work out as I had planned, but I did get into a, um, a master's program and as such began to try and figure out how um, to understand life in cities, um, to understand how African women contributed to cities in a time where we, our lives were erased, you know, when being an African in a city was not a place that Africans came from, you know, mm -hmm. it was, you either come from a, your ancestral home somewhere far away or um, your, your paternal um, father, your paternal grandparents' home, etc. And to say that you came from a city was seen as um, not correct. And so I began to try and understand my life in, in Nairobi and then again my life in Johannesburg where I thought the first things, you know, my my uh, life here, I mean, my life in cities um, was real. Um, and how could I claim that? How could I claim to belong to a city within a culture where we were encouraged to come from somewhere else? And so I tried to... Um, um, create narratives or uh, or remove the veil of silence around our lives in cities. 
Yes, where you come from where you, is absolutely key, and I'm going to ask you that shortly because we're going to a cricket crossing in just a minute. So, uh, because the, the answer to where are you from, where do you come from, is a very specific, there's a very specifically required responses to that, and I'd like you to give us a, a bit of an indication of that. I think we might have Natalie Jamanis on the line to give us a quick, 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 quick crossing. So, Caroline, just hold on for two ticks. Uh, Natalie, are you with us? Yes, I am, Nancy. Can you hear me? Go for it. Fantastic. At the moment, Australia just lost their fifth wicket, that of Steve Smith, caught by Riley Rousseau of the bowling of Robin Peterson for 67 from 74 with six fours and one six. It's the third time he's gone past the half-century mark in three innings, one of them going on to make 100 against South Africa in the last ODI, which helped Australia win the series with this one game to play. But currently, Australia 264 for five. They need 11 runs to win, and they still have 25 balls to do that. So the balls are not what South Africa's worried about. They're going to be hoping that they're going to be able to take a few more wickets and put on Australia under some more pressure. Early on, we saw David Warner make 21 from 16. Aaron Finch made 76 from 67 with 11 fours to his name. Shane Watson contributed 82 from 93 with 7 fours and 2 sixes. The first time he's gone past the half-century mark against South Africa. And now at the crease is George Bailey and Matthew Wade with Bailey on four and Wade yet to get off the mark. So the South Africans obviously will be defending as much as they possibly can. We had a couple of rain delays, so the target has been been revised to 275 with 48 overs only to be bowled. So at the end of 44 overs, Australia 264 for 5 after South Africa made 280 for 6 in their 50 overs. Quinton de Kock hit 107 from 123 balls with 14 fours, while for Australia, Pat Cummins took 3 for 54. Natalie Jamanis for SAFM Sport. Thanks very much, Natalie Jamanis for SAFM Sport, and this is Nancy Richards for SAFM Literature. And I'm talking to Caroline Wanjiku Kiatu, who has written a book called Migrant Women of Johannesburg. And the, the opening line of the preface actually says, where are you from, sister? Where is your home? That's the line I'm really referring to, Caroline, this where do you come from line. It's absolutely key that you get it right. Just explain why. Nancy, it's, it was key for me to get it right because... Um, First of all, growing up, we always had um, parents sort of asking, you know, testing their children who they brought up in cities. You know, they'd ask the proverbial question, where are you from? And here there would be a few answers that a child could give. Only one of them would be the correct answer. And what, what fascinated me about um, those, those conversations back then was the fact that uh, it was very much a, a question around location and um, the fact that, Af- you know, being, having grown up in a city um, could never be the place that I came from. It would always be my, my father's parents' home, for example, the ancestral home. And um, so the question, the, the answer Nairobi would never be the right answer and that would, you know, sort of elicit uh, shame or these shake, the shaking of heads amongst sort of the elders mm-hmm. at home and, and, the, the, and you know, as a, as a child I, I, I got a little bit confused. I understood that we came from, there were ancestors and we came from a place that was a rural place and that had very deep-rooted um, sort of histories of, of, of people, of our identity. And the fact that 
my identity, having been born and raised in a city, was erased. I took my first steps there. You know, I had my first um, love there, for example. I went to school there. And how could I not come from there mm. if all these very important rites of passage, um, which happened in that city, were not acknowledged? And for me, I felt that there was a need to um, talk about these experiences of city, even as we acknowledge that we can come from elsewhere. So is it still an important question? I mean, when you spoke to all the women that you spoke to for the purposes of this book, did you start with where do you come from? Or would would that have been an impertinent question in their situation now? I think it was... It was a very important question. It was important because it was at a time... Well, no, I said, would it have been an impertinent question? Oh, I mean... Yeah, yeah. You know, would you be... Would that have been, would that have been putting them under pressure? Oh, no, I think they always wanted to talk about mm. where they came from because it also formed their identity. You know, for example, I spoke to women who came from Zimbabwe, Rwanda, Burundi, Tanzania, Uganda, the DRC, Cameroon, and they always wanted to talk of home, mm. you know, coming from home and how that home was. And they also saw themselves as people, as, as, as um, voyagers, you know, people who wanted to explore what Johannesburg uh, had to um, set a life that they thought they could um, build some kind of success, to aspire to something. And Johannesburg meant that for them. And, um, and so it wasn't about, um, you know, de- denying that they were in Johannesburg or denying that they came from somewhere. It was about negotiating this whole, the, the identities of, of these two places and who they were in these in-between places. Yes, there's nothing like leaving one country for another to confuse your own sense of personal identity. You, you know, migrant women of Johannesburg, there's something about that line that already sounds like um, it's fraught with challenges. One of the themes that was that they always wanted to talk of home. What were the other themes? Did you, did you get a, f- a barrage of the challenges that they're confronting or, or what, what else came out? You know, I think from the stories that they told, they wanted to challenge two things um, about, about how they are stereotyped in mm. back home but also here in their host city. The one way would be how we see refugees or people who have you know, ex- escaped the most traumatic um, spaces to come to seek refuge in Johannesburg and in South Africa, which could give them that kind of safe space. And, and, and in that sense, we, you know, they wanted to challenge this sense that they were victims, that they were people who needed help. Um, that there were people who could not do for themselves. And that was the one thing they said, is that give us the sense, give us a space where we are safe and we can, we can be who, who we want to be. Yeah. The, other, the, other chan- the other stereotype that they wanted to, to challenge was this whole sense that they're the dangerous other, you know, that they are uh, coming to the city, coming to Johannesburg, and they're prostitutes, for example. They're coming to steal South African jobs. They're coming to steal um, husbands here. They're lawbreakers. And, and all they wanted to say is that we are, we are people who aspire for ordinary things. We want mm-hmm. our families to grow up and contribute to the community. We want our children to get a good education. We want to, have, um, to contribute to our communities and in our churches. 
We want to look beautiful. And so there were these very everyday, ordinary um, aspirations that, that, that are no different from yours or mine yeah. or anybody else living in the city. Yeah, and much more in common than we are different, abso- aren't we? Absolutely. This is going to be difficult, Caroline, but can you, you know, put, a, put a human face on one of the stories? Can, tell us about one of the women that you spoke to and what struck you about her in particular. Well, oh, there's so many women mm. that mm. I spoke to. Um, the one that I really, um, um, that really touches my heart is uh, Sibongile, who I dedicate the book to. And Sibongile I met um, working at a, a, a restaurant in the northern suburbs. And I said to her, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing this thing. Uh, would you like to participate in the project that I'm undertaking? And it's just really about narrating your story in the city. Sibongile came from Zimbabwe. And the first meeting that we had in the group, because I, 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 you know, we, we sat in a group of women and we just chatted and laughed and cried, you know, and did what women do. And um, she, she was the light, the bright light in, in the group. She always had a, an amazing thing to say. And when somebody was down, she would always, you know, give words of encouragement. And the first day she, she came up and she says, I don't know um, if I'm going to live long enough. I have, you know, I have HIV and I'm in, and, and I'm in, I'm in dire, you know, I'm, I sometimes get very scared. And we could never have be- believed this of Zibongila because she's the one who gave so much. And, um, and in the end, uh, you know, she did, she, she passed on in the middle of the project and I think all of us felt that loss. And and um, and and this is the narrative of the city, isn't it? It's 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 the joys, um, and it's also the pain. It's the it's the loss and the gain. Mm. And Sibongile really represented for all of us who who whose lives she touched that that sense of hope, but also the sense that it doesn't it might not always work out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I see one of the women is actually called Esperance, which I think means hope, doesn't it? So there's, there is a lot of hope in the book. Just lastly, Caroline, who do you want to read the book? I mean, it's a story for Sibongile and on all the other women, but it's a, a book for whom? To make, uh, to make those of us who live here understand better, for, for them to send home to other women who may come here? I think, I mean, it, it was an academic book. But what I really try to do, Nancy, is to bring out those narratives, those stories that um, you and I and anybody who picks up the book can identify with because all of us in Johannesburg in, who live in cities have somewhere else that we, that, you know, we've come from somewhere else. And I, and I really wanted um, people to pick up the book, maybe not read the whole book, but if you pick up a story and open, up, open it to a page, get that sense that it does resonate with a life with your life or with a sense you know with that sense of hope or fear of 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 success or or not mm-hmm. in the city and so i think it's a book for people who are interested in cities people who are interested in understanding what the post apartheid city means um in south africa and 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 beyond and for people who are interested in groups of women, have you, just very lastly, have you kept the group together? Do, do you ever meet up occasionally? 
Not as a group, but mm. I have been in touch with, um, with, with women individually. Some of them have moved on um, and have left the country, and others have, like Sibongile, unfortunately, have passed on. But I'm always in touch with a few, and, and we connected in a way that I feel um, j- just helped support this life that we lead um, in, in, in this urban space that can sometimes be quite uh, discouraging but also in many ways um, hopeful for the future. A lot of hope and support in migrant women of Johannesburg, life in an in-between city. Caroline, lovely. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you did for all the women who, whose stories you heard. I'm sure just being heard must have been uh, really quite something in itself. Thank you, Nancy. Take it's care. I'm sure we'll speak again. Take thank care. You. Thanks. Caroline Wanjiko um, Kiato, and I hope I pronounced that right. It's Migrant Women of Johannesburg. It's published, incidentally, by Wits University Press. Well, stay with us, Isidingo lovers, because we're going to hear more just now. Stay tuned. For interviews and analysis that move markets, politicians, and the nation, listen to SAFM Current Affairs. Len, you're calling from Cape Town. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Maybe Helen Zilla is a far cleverer lady than people would give her credit for. For the same and simple reason, she took the cream, ergo, the DA performed far, far better than any other province in South Africa. That's about it. Nobody saw? I can only say the gentleman that it is your opinion that Helen Villa is the smartest woman um, in the country. It is your opinion that it is okay to use meritocracy to exclude others. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. This is SFM Literature, and just so if I didn't tell you, I just a reminder once again that the first hour of SFM Literature is podcast, so if you've heard anything that you'd like to hear again, you can find it on www.safm.co.za, go to podcasts and scroll down, or up, or whatever it may be, to SFM Literature, and if you want to get in touch with us, find us on Facebook, it's SFM Literature. Well, next up, we have uh, a writer who seems to be something of a, a comedian, let's call him that, in as much as James Wiley is not only the author of two books, a play, an autobiographical one at that, but also of several thousand episodes of Issy Dingo. The book, and I have one right here, is called The Book of War, uh, described by William Kentridge as a rare feast. The other one is called The Walk, which came out more recently, and that's all about the journey of a shipwreck, of shipwreck survivors on the southern Cape coastline back in the 1780s, and The Book of War, written in a very sort of um, archaic style, maybe. I don't know, James is going to tell us if that's the right sort of uh, assessment. But by complete contrast, his Isidingo episodes are as hot off the press as it's possible for, only possible as it is for a daily soap to be. Well, we've got him in our Joburg studio. Hi, James. Hello, Nancy. Am I, am I, it's fair to call you a chameleon. Do you feel like that? Uh, I'm a working writer. Okay. <laughs> you are, well, I suppose the, the comedian thing came because I'm thinking, gee, how did this chap write in these sort of incredibly different styles? I mean, do you put your do you put a different working writing hat on when you're writing your books? Where obviously you do writing your scripts, but are you very conscious of that? Well, the the, the tasks are very different. Um, uh, writing a daily series, uh, it's a bit like you, you have to produce a table, a sort of good, sturdy table, once a week. Whereas a novel is a bit more, I don't know, like uh, 
an intricate cabinet or, mm, you know, okay. cabinetry or, uh, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, you're staying with that analogy. What was it when you were writing your, your very first play in which you starred yourself back when you were a, a young man? Um, what, what simply piece of furniture was that? <laughs> <laughs> An, um, an adolescent piece of furniture, a first attempt, uh, I suppose. Uh, yes, uh, Nancy, I don't know how to answer. No, no, don't, 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 don't. I'm putting you into difficult spots here. But the reason I'm asking all these questions is that there was a wonderful piece that you wrote in uh, the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago called "Here's the Story." And, um, and it, it's your own story in a way. It was, it was all about, you know, uh, how you started writing, how you became, uh, how you were conscripted and ducked out of that and then uh, wrote the play about the, your getting out of the army. Mm. National and madness, yeah. Yes, and, and how it all went on. So I just really wanted to start with your writing career and this worm, that, as you describe. Well, that's how a script goes. But your writing career, I suppose, a bit like a worm as well. How did your writing career start? In the army? It started <coughs> with um, with National Madness, which which, which was a play, um, which was essentially about what happened to me. Yes, in the in the army and and running away running away from the army and being sent to um, the Mad Ward Ward Five in Bloemfontein, um, and being kicked out. It, it it kind of told that story. Did you, I mean, while it was actually happening, did you see it as a, as a play? Oh, absolutely not. I wasn't there mm. looking for material mm. at all. One was forced to go. Um, uh, no. I arrived in Johannesburg after the army, and um, I'd studied drama at Rhodes, and I, I, I fell among actors, people like um, Claire Stopford, um, who, who were doing... And I found this extraordinary because it wasn't taught at Rhodes. We were doing their own work. Um, and out of that um, culture of doing your own work and my story, that the, the idea came that, um, that I should uh, do it as a play. You studied drama, but I think somewhere along the line you realized that actually acting wasn't really for you and it was more the sort of the writing side that was going to work for you. Is that right? Well, I, I realized... I was very limited as an actor. Um, this kind of answers your first question. I, I think I've got more range as a writer. Mm. Um, yes, I, so I realised I was really limited as an actor, and I wasn't. I wasn't earning any money, and um, typing seemed to be the only skill I'd shown evidence of. Yes, I mean a lot of people can type, but not everybody can necessarily write as it were, so clearly it wasn't, it wasn't just typing that was, uh, w was going to work for you. No, I, I use the word sort of ironically, although, mm. in fact, it, I mean, personally, I write on a laptop, you know, it's not, it is typing for me, yeah, um, yeah. but with uh, you know, serious typing, fancy. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, seriousness is something that you, you, you play with, I can say, but w at what point did working for Isidingo come in, what point did you start doing the script writing? Um, uh, towards the end of my career, when I was um, searching for work, um, you, you know, you put out feelers, and, and uh, Gray Hofmeyer um, approached me. Uh, what makes it 
different from just looking for work as a freelancer is that it tends to be ongoing. Yeah, which is a useful thing. Yes. So when you start, when you started, do you, are you put on trial? I mean, how many scriptwriters are there for Isidingo? I imagine quite a few. A soap opera, um, and as I said, I can't talk much specifically about Isidingo mm. because if you want to talk to Isidingo, then you have to approach uh, Endemol. Um, but a soap opera generally would have, say, five to seven dialogue writers. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really want to sort of uh, sort of press you on Isidingo and what's going to happen next so much as the art of writing a, a daily um, a daily soap must be enormously challenging because not only have you got to keep all the characters in play, I suppose, according to their availability, but you've also got to be pretty topical. I mean, you describe it in this article of yours as uh, uh, each episode is a segment of a never-ending non-arthropod invertebrate. So <laughs> just explain yourself there. Well, it is by nature segmented in that each episode is a segment and that there's, so then, so then it is a a kind of a worm and and the writing department is right at the front imagining the worm um, uh, into being. Um, You'd have a yearly meeting or two yearly meetings where story is generated. Uh, those stories are handed on to uh, storyliners who who beat them out in beats of narrative action. I use the example um, Frodo sleeps with Gandalf um, as a beat of narr- narrative action. Something happens, and then they develop those into scenes. Um, uh, and they, I feel like I'm boring everyone. To <laughs> no, tears, Nancy, <laughs> no. Well, I mean, if how. you knew how many people watch Isidingo <coughs> on any on a daily basis, I'm sure you would be people would be riveted to know how it happens. I mean, is as a scriptwriter, I mean that in itself answers the question really. But do you write the storyline or do you write the words? You know that everybody says. That, do, do we get from your pen? Do we get the dialogue? No, at the moment I'm working as a, what would be called in America a dialogue writer. Okay. Um, there are story leaders who are developing uh, uh, normally an A, someone working on an A story, a B story, a C story. Um, there's a breakdowner, essentially, who at some stage um, will take those stories and put them in sequential breakdowns of six, um, five or six episodes. And then those go out to the writers, who um, which is why in America they're called dialogue writers, because of the story is already written. Um, the You're scenes are there in sequence. It sounds like the ultimate in team writing, um, because you, I mean, even as a dialogue writer, or especially as a dialogue writer, you've got to be true to whatever the, the guy at the, the front end of this worm is, you know, had in mind. You've got to make sure you deliver. Along the line, and I imagine there isn't a lot of time to be chopping and changing and tickling things up, do, do people say, Mm-mm, that's not what I meant, you've got to change it? That again specific. It, it works in very different ways. In England, um, dialogue writers are paid quite a huge amount of money, given a lot of freedom, and um, and are belaboured um, to rewrite again and again and again. That's a model at one end. At the other end, you'll have dialogue writers doing one draft and, and a script editor and the head writer coming after them, kind of ironing it, as as it were, mm. so that it does. But all the writers 
have to be obviously very familiar with the program and the characters. Oh, I, I would imagine project. absolutely in the head of the characters to make their their words sound authentic. Are there times when the characters themselves are, are well, I don't want to, as, as I say, press you into saying things that you're not allowed to say, but I imagine there are times when the characters may have something to say about what it is they've got to say. <laughs> um, look, I'll approach it from a slightly different angle. Improvisers, theatrical improvisers often end up being writers on daily series because they they get the, their trade is to get themselves into the head of a situation and the character virtually immediately. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to move you on from the team writing, that is script writing, to the very individual writing. And later on, we're going to be talking about poetry, which is even more individual, I would imagine. Um, writing novels, The Book of War. It was your debut novel. Yes. What yes, did well. you have in mind? Um, I uh, had been thinking about the Eastern, Eastern Cape his, history for a long time because I grew up there. And then I read um, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Um, and uh, it, it seemed to be a very different way of seeing history. Uh, it was kind of guiltless and filmic. It just said, this is what happened. This is what it's like to be there. Um, and I, yeah, decided to see if I could m- make that work on on a South African story in a South African war. Mm. So, uh, quite a lot of research to find all that information. Look, I've been researching that my whole life because, as I said, I grew up in the Eastern Cape. So, people like uh, Jeff Perez and uh, Noel Mostert, Frontiers, um, those books were well thumbed on my library, mm. you know, on my shelf shelves. Interesting that you then chose to study drama and not history, perhaps. <laughs> well, I fell into drama by accident first. Um, that just because it had pretty girls. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I mean, we all have our own reasons for doing things, but but research seems very much to be your thing. I mean, the walk, which I, I mean, sadly I haven't read either of your books. I have got the book of war, but haven't had a chance to, to read it properly. Um, it's but packed with jokes. I'm sure you'll love it. Nancy. The, the book of war. Yes. Is it? Oh well, I should get onto it immediately. Good. Um, but moving on to the walk, which is a, the journey of shipwreck survivors on a, on a southern Cape coastline back in the 1780s. Again, you must have been a huge amount of research or did you feel free to embellish? With both books, uh, Nancy had a very specific way of working, that, that I had um, texts, first-hand accounts of people who were there. In, in, in the case of Walk, it was William Hubbley wrote a journal. And Walk is really just a version, in, in a way, of his journal. It, it, it is, I would argue, much more factual than most non-fiction books which often say uh, the authors will use phrases like they probably at this stage or no doubt they uh, Walk doesn't have any of that it says on this day the 3rd of September this happens which uh, coming back to the book of war which is again I was sort of referring I'm not sure how to describe the style of writing that you've used but it, it has a sort of almost biblical uh, archaic aspect can you explain that? Um, look, I mean, that's probably connected to drama and the, the spoken word. Um, uh, rhythm, I mean, uh, I've, I've got a relationship with William Shakespeare. I've, I've 
I've edited and directed him. Um, so the spoken word, the Book of War is influenced by McCarthy, and then so is Walk. Um, but then uh, he's influenced by the other things like Shakespeare and the King James Bible, where there's a kind of mutual influence. Uh, am I making any sense? I'm yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that we're going to take a quick break because we need to, and then we're going to come back and see if we can um, find out a little bit more about your relationship with Shakespeare. So stay tuned. We're <laughs> talking to James Wiley about, well, he's a, a multi-skilled writer, so stay with us. APSA Premiership continues this week. Wednesday at Nelson Mandela Bay, Chipper United squares off against Free State Stars. The Urban Warriors. Welcome Bloemfontein Celtics at Cape Town Stadium. At Mbombela Stadium, Black Aces are at home against the Clever Boys. Kickoff is at half past seven. Tickets available at 40 Rand. Proudly brought to you by the Premier Soccer League. The Department of Trade and Industry has established special economic zones with the intention to bring mainstream economic activity to poor and isolated parts of South Africa. A range of incentives is available to ensure special economic zones offer a more investor-friendly business environment to generate revenue, create jobs, improve competitiveness, and attract foreign direct investment. For more information, visit the dti.gov.za or call the DTI Customer Contact Center on 0861-843-384. The DTI, towards full-scale industrialization and inclusive growth. Listening to SFM Literature, we're talking to James Wiley. I, James, I've been calling you James Wiley. Is that how you pronounce your surname? It's. Hello? Yeah? It's exactly how you pronounce it. Oh, good, it. good. I thought perhaps I got it wrong. You and Shakespeare, and Shakespeare and dialogue. Me and, and Will. And, yeah, you, Will and you. And, and Isidingo and dialogue. I'm just thinking that Shakespeare, of course, was a master of dialogue, and a very clever dialogue it was, too. And you are somewhere between Shakespeare, somewhere between um, historical novels, somewhere between stuff that's very everyday. Where, where do you get your dialogue from? Do you spend a lot of time listening to how people talk? Or... Do you just imagine it? Um, one imagines it. You, you have to listen to how people talk, and you have to be aware that it's, um, it, it doesn't have the same rules as grammar, English grammar. Um, so uh, you, you also find bits. So a lot of what I consider the funny lines in the book of war um, like someone says of a general he reasons like an oyster um, I find it funny to think of a clam or an oyster reasoning or that the, the, the general thinks that the, the, the soldier thinks the general has that level of intelligence the, the intelligence of a clam um, th those are kind of um, stolen from, uh, I think that thing was uh, somewhere on the internet or <laughs> in America, the funny things their grandfathers used to say. So th then you might just write that down, you know, you might yeah. just like that line. Well, how differently we speak now from our grandfathers. Well, I suppose most of us do, and certainly 
Certainly, I would imagine you do. But, James, it's been fascinating. Thank you very much, and uh, very best of luck with your ongoing uh, script-writing business, and I'm sure there will be many more books coming from your pen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. James Wiley, and his book is called The Book of War. The other one is called The Walk. Uh, And The Book of War is published by Jacana, if you'd like to lay your hands on that. Well, we're going to be talking to somebody else who is very big on words and doing exactly her own thing with words just in a minute. We're going to be talking to Angie Kroch. But right now, here on SAFM, it's time for the news at 2 o'clock with Anne Musa.